Welcome to Miami Global Net Podcast, where we showcase the people and organizations that support Miami's international landscape. Learn from local business owners, startups, diplomats, and community leaders. Get to know the tools and services that are out there that help you invest and grow in South Florida. Miami is a true global city where one can live and do business with a global reach. All right, Miamians and listeners from around the world, welcome to another episode of Miami Global Net. Today, we're back with the European American Chamber of Commerce and a new guest and a new topic. We have here Christina Slesinska that's going to introduce our guest and tell us about what we're going to be talking about, Christina and Thomas, which Christina will introduce. But Christina, thank you for joining us and bringing us another awesome guest and another interesting topic. Thank you. Hello, my name is Christina Slezinska and I'm the executive director of the EACC Florida. We are the Florida chapter of the European American Chamber of Commerce, a platform where Americans and Europeans connect to do business. EACC provides resources, education and updates on regulatory issues, regulatory and legal developments of relevance to the transatlantic business community. We organize events on issues of interest for constituency and offer unique connections and networking opportunities. We're very happy to partner with Miami Global Net on a podcast series of deep dives focusing on big picture issues and how they affect transatlantic business activities. Today's deep dive is on a key issue affecting transatlantic relations, trade. While many of us will have heard about the decades-long Airbus-Boeing disputes or about the tariffs imposed on steel, wine, sweaters, or Harley-Davidson's, which further soured the transatlantic relationship, there seems to be some light at the end of the tunnel. For this deep dive on transatlantic trade, we're delighted to have with us Thomas Bacht, who is the head of the trade and agricultural section at the delegation of the European Union in Washington, D.C. In other words, the embassy of the, Euro of the European Union here to the United States. Thomas is in charge of the planning, management and coordination of the EU's trade policy in the U.S. since 2018. And frankly, I couldn't have thought of a better person to offer our audience some insights into the direction in which the current discussions on transatlantic trade are going. So now, without further ado, I'll pass the floor to Alejandro Cervalli, our host here at Miami Global Net. Thank you, Christina. Thank you very much. So Thomas, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you for joining us. Well, it's great to join you, although I'm in Washington. I would have loved to be with you, of course. But happy to connect in this way and share uh, share a few thoughts and hear from you on uh, on important issues. That's nice. Is it? Is it well, how's the weather up there? We actually have a, a, a little bit of a bad day today, but uh, but we've been spoiled in general with some nice sunshine and out of the humidity of Washington uh, here. So, all right, it's cool. Cool here. Here it's getting here. Miami is still kind of hot and humid, so we're looking forward for a winter, or at least quote unquote a winter. So, Thomas, tell us a little bit about yourself before we start diving into trade. Well, thank you, Alejandro. I'm a European Union official, as was already mentioned, uh, which means my, my nationality is European. Um, but be, below that, I have a Belgian passport. Um, I have, I've been working with the European Union, the European Commission, to be more precise, for more than 16 years now, and have always worked in our trade uh, department. Uh, we'll talk about that more, but trade is... It's a very important subject for the European Union, not only in how we got together as 27 member states, but also in how we deal with the world, how we like to join forces and, and, and link our economies uh, together. So trade is really my passion, and I've been doing that for 16 years. 
been doing it around the world. Um, this is uh, my second posting outside of uh, Brussels, which is our headquarters. Uh, I was in Geneva before, uh, where we have a, a, a big mission to the World Trade Organization. And I've also been dealing with a lot of Asian uh, economies and, and issues, but of course, very excited to be in Washington now, finishing my third year here. Um, and there hasn't been a dull day uh, dealing with trade in the transatlantic uh, relationship. And, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. A great way to start then will be to, if you can give us an overview of the state of the EU and US trade relations, like what's the current status. And of course, we are in the pandemic still, you know, with all these new variants and stuff. How has that affected also that relationship? Good, good starting point indeed. And, and I think it's important that when we think of the, the state of the trade relationship, the transatlantic trade relationship, it's important sometimes to look beyond the headlines. Because sometimes we, we look at problems, we look at issues, and we'll get to some of those. Um, but largely speaking, uh, this is a fantastic uh, relationship, uh, the strongest and the s single most important bilateral trade relationship that two economies have in the world, uh, the European Union and, and the United States. Uh, represent more than one third of global GDP, uh, represent the biggest uh, trade flows and investment flows, because investment is a, is a very important uh, way for us to, 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 to link our economies. And so overall, uh, we have been uh, working hard, of course, to make sure that uh, that trade is, is great and that, um, that we keep, uh, we keep our, our trade channel open. And that is not so much something that happens because of bureaucrats like me or others. It's mostly because of businesses, it's because of our people, Um, it's because of our students, our researchers, there's a lot of interaction uh, across the Atlantic uh, and that makes our trade relationship um, really great. So we're strongly integrated, strongly interconnected, and that obviously means that in a uh, global pandemic, we have had, uh, of course, a fair impact on, on, on our trade uh, relationship, just like there's been an impact on pretty much uh, everything else. Um, what we have seen is that the impact in this crisis has been larger on trade in services, which is, of course, also very important for Florida. I think travel services, just to name one, more than on manufacturing uh, trade, on, on goods trade. Uh, we have been consuming goods. We have all been uh, ordering things from, 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 from our homes online. Um, and so trading goods has been strong, but it has been struggling uh, with issues of uh, shortages, of course, as well as some stress and, and some tension that we've seen in supply chains as we're all uh, scrambling to get to get those inputs that we need for, for, key, for key products. Um, so trade has certainly uh, been impacted, but we, have, we are seeing a, a pretty strong rebound as the economy uh, is also rebounding uh, post-pandemic. Um, and we are, of course, very committed to keep this the greatest trade relationship in the world. For an institutional point of view, who and how are trade negotiations in the U.S. and their partners in the EU? Yeah, well, the, the European Union, one of, one of my previous presidents called the European Union a, a UPO, an unidentified political object. Uh, sometimes uh, it is worth uh, spending a, a little moment in, here in the United States to, to explain who we are and how we work. There were 27 nations that came together basically around the promise of peace and, and prosperity in Europe following devastating wars we had seen on, on our continent. Uh, and trade was, was very much the glue in the beginning. We, we really linked our economies uh, and created what is now uh, the largest single market in the world. When it comes to our, our trade policy, um, the European Union actually speaks with a single voice. So I'm very privileged often in 
by carrying that voice on behalf of 27 member states and on leveraging this single market um, that we have. And uh, that is why uh, the European Union is often seen as a sort of an economic giant and even a regulatory power in the world, um, whereas we might not be as, as strong and not always speak with a single voice on, on other areas. Um, this is certainly the case, uh, the case for trade. So institutionally, uh, we are speaking with a single voice, that is the European Commission that speaks on behalf of the European Union. And uh, that means that the European uh, member states uh, are not directly engaging, for example, the US government or other governments around the world in, uh, in trade negotiations. And that sometimes is, some, is something we need to ex explain and, and repeat that to US presidents uh, and, and others, um, that you cannot negotiate a trade agreement with the German chancellor or the French president, um, but that we come together, we work together and stick together as a union of 27 nations um, that, that speak with a single voice on, on trade. And that makes us um, matter, to be very honest. And, and that makes us, I think, a, a worthy uh, interlocutor. Uh, and of course, uh, we, we engage the US, but also other countries around the world in making sure that trade is, is working for, for the people, for our economies, and is, is also contributing to overall uh, stability in the world. And your role specifically, where do you come in? Well, so I'm, I'm basically the eyes, the ears, and the mouth on the ground. Christina was right in, in referring to our delegation as an embassy. Uh, we are on the ground in the United States, in Washington. And of course, we know the United States is much bigger than Washington, which is why I'm very keen always to come out to the, in, to, to, to the States and to, to engage also uh, people outside the Beltway. Um, and so we basically uh, help our, our leadership in Brussels um, uh, carry this single, this single voice and take forward uh, a trade agenda that is based on the idea that we make trade work for people, uh, that we make uh, the, the trade open and, and as a contributor to, to prosperity overall. I have a two-part question. I have, which U.S. states are the EU's largest trade partner? And then the other way around, which EU, EU countries are the U.S. biggest trade partner? Well, I think it's first important and perhaps interesting to point out that 47 of the states in the United States trade more with the European Union than they trade with China. I know there's a lot of debate always when uh, we talk about trade that everybody thinks uh, that, that China is, is the number one uh, sort of player in town. Uh, but actually, the European Union is overall the most important uh, top one or top two uh, trading partner for most uh, U.S. states. And of course, we trade as a bloc. We trade as a single market. Um, so that is also where uh, how, how, how that can be explained. Now, in terms of exports uh, to the European Union, and I'm basing myself now on 2020 data, uh, the leading states are Texas, California, and uh, New York. So there's perhaps no uh, surprises there. Uh, Florida is actually a, a 15th in terms of exports uh, to the European Union. So there's still some scope for uh, moving up uh, the, the, the charts there. Um, in terms of imports, from the European Union, uh, the leading states are New Jersey, California, uh, Texas, and Indiana. And Florida, in terms of imports uh, from the European Union, uh, ranks around the 11th place. I already mentioned where we, we trade as a bloc, but of course we do have 27 individual nations. So if you really want to know which are the biggest member states in terms of trade uh, with, with the United States, um, you will not be surprised that Germany is, of course, number one, both in terms of uh, the export market from the United States overall, but also for Florida. And, uh, and the Netherlands uh, is on number two. 
Belgium, France, Italy. So some of our, our biggest member states or some of our central member states, uh, they take up the top spots, uh, both for overall U.S. trade as well as for, uh, for Florida. If I had to guess, Germany is leading because of either vehicles or planes. You highlight two important sectors and two important products, um, and, and that's absolutely true. But I would say it's for components, it's for inputs. Components. The way we trade these days is actually we trade in components a lot more, mm -hmm. and then we, we work across these very complex uh, supply chains. I'm actually coming south. I'm, I won't make it to Florida this time, but I'm going to, to, uh, uh, to Spartanburg, South Carolina, for example, where I'll visit uh, the BMW site, which is the largest uh, manufacturing site for BMW in the, war, in the world the entire world. And it's obvious that as BMW has established itself in South Carolina, for example, they are sourcing a lot of components from around uh, the, the world, including from, from Europe. So it's true that we see a lot of components uh, come from Europe into the United States and vice versa. We are building or assembling, whether it's vehicles or aircraft, um, with a lot of components that come from, from around the world. So the days are over uh, where a product is, is built and finished in one country with inputs from that single country. Uh, we're really very much integrated and interconnected and we work across these supply chains. And that's very true for EU-US trades um, overall. There's a, a very important phenomenon actually that takes place uh, across the Atlantic and that's what we call intra-industry trade or intra-company trade even, which is basically companies or subsidiaries that are trading with one another. About one third of overall transatlantic trade is made up of this intra-company trade, uh, where you have two, two companies or one and the same com com company rather with, with two subsidiaries that are trading inputs um, uh, back and forth uh, until it becomes a, a finished product. So I think that's the way in which uh, you have to look at, at transatlantic trade and trade overall. Um, very integrated and, and with uh, with very strong supply chains. Jumping to FTAs, to free trade agreements. You know, Canada, Korea, and some Latin American countries have free trade agreements, FTAs, between the US and the EU, right? Um, I think there was negotiations for an FTA between the EU and the US, right? That was called the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, or TTIP. Uh, which was launched in 2013, but it was failed and shelved. I don't know if you can tell us more about what happened there and what that was all about. Yeah, we have indeed a lot of uh, trade agreements or free trade agreements, as they're sometimes called, FTAs. We have them with 74 countries um, around the world, and that really reflects our, our commitment as a European Union to open rules-based trade. We want to, I mean, our, our economies are almost like a parachute. They function best when they're open. So we want to make sure that we can, we can get the best from, from, from our neighbors, from our friends around the world, whether that's ideas or people or goods and, and services to, to, to support our own uh, economic growth and, and our, own, uh, our own trade, basically. Um, so trade agreements are one way to, to consolidate uh, that, that commitment. And it's, it's, it's true that we, in the past, uh, pursued a, a very similar uh, effort in the transatlantic context with the TTIP, as you mentioned, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. But I think it's important to put our, our transatlantic relationship into a little bit of a perspective here, um, and that is that uh, trade is largely open across the Atlantic. Our tariffs uh, that we apply vis-a-vis -vis each other are fairly low. And I think you actually need to, to compare uh, trade liberalization or trade negotiations sometimes to peeling an onion. 
Uh, and that's not just because that's an activity that, that risks making you cry, um, but it is actually because you need to work your way through different layers. And the first layer mm-hmm. are the kind of first barriers, the border barriers, the things that, that arise and exist at the border, including customs duties and, and so-called tariffs. Um, and those are not really the issues in the transatlantic relationship. We really have to deal with what is sometimes called the behind the border uh, measures, the, the, the second or third layer of that onion. And those issues are trickier uh, because we're talking very often about regulatory differences, the fact that you need to comply with, with regulation that is different uh, in two different uh, jurisdictions. And very often it is there for very good reasons, um, not so much to, to hinder trade, uh, but to protect consumers or to protect the environment. And it has been is challenging, of course, to, to find a solution to those uh, types of barriers where it is relatively easy and straightforward to remove the border barriers and to remove tariffs. And that is what we've done uh, with a number of countries around the world. Uh, but those barriers are not really what, what, what hinders transatlantic trade. We need to look behind the border. And I think that's the, uh, the challenge that we, that we faced. In a, in a context which was, of course, politically uh, not, not very easy, uh, there was a lot of uh, interest in this negotiation uh, in, our, uh, in our domestic environment, in our constituencies in, in Europe, uh, as there was in the United States. And so we certainly uh, uh, struggled in, um, in, in pulling all of these things together into one big comprehensive uh, trade agreement. Uh, and even if we have abandoned that effort of trying to have a big trade agreement, we are certainly still pursuing chipping away at some of those those layers of that onion and trying to target some of those uh, very challenging uh, behind the border uh, measures that we have. And that maybe maybe I I can mention it here because we made the announcement actually today. uh, That is something we are pursuing now in uh, what we now call a trade and technology council, a new effort uh, that was launched at the uh, the summit, the US leader summit in mid-June when President Biden took his first trip overseas. He came to, to Europe and visited Brussels and met with the leadership of the European Union also. And we agreed that we need to come together again in another effort where we really try to address those behind the border measures, those challenges that have to do uh, with trade and, and with technology and, and sometimes also with national security um, in an effort where we are looking at our, our shared interests, but also our shared values and uh, try to uh, try to make sure that we again where we keep our, our trade relationship the greatest trade relationship there is and uh, remove barriers uh, where they uh, where they still exist and, and that's typically in this kind of behind behind the border that's where they are and that's where we're working very hard you know i have, I have to admit i i it was i was not thinking of of those as you say the other the the other parts of the onion right when you're when you're breaking through these these deals i thought it was you know just tariffs customs and that's it i didn't think of any other issues like when you mean regulations you mean like for example any product related regulation that we may have here in the united states for internal use and then a product comes in yeah we can lift any restrictions but then we also have to deal with those those regulations right is that am i understanding you correctly yeah your understanding is absolutely correct, but maybe I'll just throw in an example to, to make it more uh, to make it clearer and more concrete. And my favorite example is basically in the car industry. Um, if you want to bring uh, put a car onto the market, uh, and that's a European car, it needs to be subject to a crash test in the United States, even if that vehicle or that model has already undergone a crash test in, in the European Union. So we basically require to crash cars twice 
um, to, meet, to make sure that we meet uh, safety standards in both uh, jurisdictions. And that has to do with the fact that, for example, airbag uh, requirements or seatbelt requirements in the United States are different. It doesn't mean that they're worse or better, uh, they're just different. And, and, and that's where we're looking for ways to basically acknowledge that we are we both care about safe cars, of course, and about the safety of passengers and, um, and of traffic more generally. Um, but we're looking for ways to avoid where, that we have to crash those cars twice and that whatever we've done in Europe as a, as a test and as, as, as requirements to meet uh, safety standards, that those will be considered sufficient uh, for entry into the U.S. market and, of course, uh, vice versa. Um, and that's something uh, that we, we often try to do through what we call mutual recognition agreements or MRAs, where we basically recognize each other's level of protection. Uh, and, and product requirements and standards. And in some cases, that that's not an easy conversation because we do need to look uh, into the detail of what each side is doing. And we need, we need to look at potential compensatory measures where we uh, make sure that, uh, of course, we, we uphold uh, high uh, standards of consumer protection and safety. Um, but that is essentially it. So I hope you, you appreciate that uh, regulation has a reason. It's, it's there for a reason. We're not simply trying to remove regulation like we like we can simply remove tariffs we need to try to make sure that we that we keep that, the, that we that we honor the reason why regulation is there for um, while making sure that we make it easier for our exporters and that we support our, our consumers of course in getting the best product at the best possible price so tariffs pricing taxes is probably the easy part of trade agreements is diving into those details what takes the longest part of it well i wouldn't say nothing is really easy and if, if this <laughs> was easy i wouldn't be here and then we wouldn't have this job of course um but but uh but you're surely right that, that uh, with everything we just discussed that the, the the kind of second third layer issues of our onion those are the hardest parts looking at regulations trying to understand uh how we both work uh what are the differences uh, i think that's the, the the biggest part of our jobs uh, and, uh, and 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 really trying to find a way to build a bridge between two systems uh, that are different, and that actually is something we have a lot of experience with in in the European Union because obviously we build a single market out yeah. of twenty different markets, um, and I think Americans are often uh, surprised uh, when they look at how integrated we are in Europe. Uh, when Americans think of of Europe, they think of of diversity typically, and they underestimate actually our unity. Same way, I would actually say that when Europeans look at the United States, they think of unity and they underestimate the diversity that exists, which is one of the reasons why we're always happy to discover and, and that diversity and engage uh, individual U.S. states uh, on, on, on critical issues. So, uh, so you're absolutely right. I think it's a huge challenge to, to manage diversity. We have experience with that. And there is, of course, uh, some diversity in the food that we eat, the, car, the, the cars that we drive, etc., in the United States and the European Union. So as we attempt to build, let's say, a, a trade agreement or one of these bridges to make sure that it flows and there's not, and we clear as many uh, layers of this onion to make sure that the deals can be made and, and business can flow, how specific are these trade agreements when they, are they like many industries? Because if you have to do this in many industries, I'm assuming, I'm assuming it takes a lot of time to put one of these agreements together, or are you targeting a trade agreement only in the in a particular industry. Well, the answer is it, it depends. Um, it depends on on the topic or, or the uh, the issue. Um, uh, in some areas, we're able to to do uh, 
to do deals that are a little bit cross-cutting. And I'm thinking, for example, of our discussions on what we call the privacy shield, which is the, the protection that we need uh, of, of data and of privacy uh, to make sure that data can flow freely. And that is, of course, something uh, that is relevant for many sectors and many industries. Uh, everyone these days depends on, on data and on the free flow of, of data. So that's one way of trying to build a bridge and, and try to build a highway, really, uh, across our economies uh, where data can flow freely and securely uh, with the full respect, of course, of uh, the, the, the privacy and data protection laws uh, that we have uh, in the European Union in particular. Uh, in some areas, we, we take a sectoral approach, and, and that has been the case, for example, in pharmaceuticals, where we came up with, and this is, this is where the jargon comes in, but where we have uh, agreed this so-called mutual recognition agreement on what is called uh, good manufacturing practices, GMP. So all the, the conditions and criteria uh, for manufacturing in the pharmaceutical area so as to make sure that we recognize those so that the, in, the output of, of that manufacturing process, medicine, um, can be traded uh, uh, more easily uh, across the, the Atlantic. So the answer is really depends. I think in some mm. cases we can take a, a sectoral approach. We have to take a sectoral approach because every sector is, of course, uh, specific and, and, and quite unique. Uh, in other cases, we, we can look for certain cross-cutting topics uh, so as to uh, support uh, a whole range of industries and, and how they do business. Got it. So let's jump into one of the issues. I understand there's an impact regarding the Airbus-Boeing dispute on the EU and US trade. How does the agreement that was reached in June will affect the future of our trade negotiations? Well, I already mentioned we, we, we have a great trade relationship and, and trade flows freely and, and that happens every day thanks to the, uh, the, the, the people and, and the businesses that, uh, that, that work together so, so well. But of course, we always have what we call trade irritants. There's always a small percentage of, of trade fights, and these are, these are things that often hit the headlines, of course. And one of them uh, for the last more than 15 years, actually, was the uh, large civil aircraft debate, which is a debate about uh, under what conditions the EU can support uh, Airbus, and subsidize Airbus, and in what conditions the US can uh, support Boeing. We both have a, a large civil aircraft uh, manufacturer, and both of them are, are the, the, the dominant players, of course, in, in the world market. It's a unique and a complex uh, sector um, that is in need of some uh, support. But the debate was around the question, what type of support uh, can we provide uh, to that industry uh, so that we do not impact uh, trade adversely, that we do not uh, have, have a, 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 an adverse effect on, on the trade flows and on, on each other's economies. So for 15 years, there's been a, a, a litigation effort that has been underway in the World Trade Organization, uh, which concluded. And on that basis, we have indeed uh, reached an agreement and that was consolidated at the summit that I already mentioned earlier, the US Leaders Summit uh, back in June of uh, 2021, um, where our leadership basically said, well, let's, uh, let's turn the page on these dispute now, disputes. Let's agree that some form of support to this unique and complex aerospace industry is still needed. Uh, but let's also make sure that we look forward and that we also look at some of the challenges that we see in this area, which includes the fact that we have in China now um, uh, aircraft manufacturers that are being fully subsidized and that really risk uh, distorting trade and uh, undermining the, the level playing fields that we really want to maintain in this area as, as well as in others. Um, so I think it's a, it's a great example of how we're able to deal with trade irritants, which should not spoil the relationship, which, which are there, uh, they're always there, 
we always fight over a few small things. I think that's the case in every uh, relationship probably. Um, but I think the significance of this deal really lies in the fact that we're able to manage those, uh, those disputes. And we managed to do that with a forward-looking perspective, making sure that we are able to, uh, to supply the world and the market with a wonderful aircraft uh, while making sure that there's no un unfair competition, neither between us nor, uh, nor with China. So I think that's a, a very important uh, result that was reached. Got it. And today, looking into the future in the next few months, years, what are some of the key issues you see in the evolution of trade between us, the U.S. and the EU? Well, I think it's important to, to, to zoom out a little bit more and to, to think of trade uh, as, as an enabler, as something that supports a number of other issues, global challenges. Uh, COVID is, is one, uh, climate or, or China. I think all of those uh, global challenges will really shape the, the, the nature of trade uh, and the nature of trade conversations. Um, for example, uh, COVID obviously is, is still uh, is still around us, and uh, we need the vaccines, we need uh, PPE, personal protective equipment, and trade is part of the solution there. Uh, really, we need those inputs. We need to work together. None of the vaccines would have been produced if it wasn't for transatlantic cooperation. And the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine is, of course, the best example, uh, but also others. I mean, Pfizer is producing the majority of the vaccines out of the European Union. In fact, 55% of the vaccines come from, from Belgium uh, in the case of Pfizer. So we're, we're seeing a great uh, cooperation. I think it's important that we keep uh, that, that close uh, cooperation and integration uh, to really use the transatlantic relationship as a platform to address some of those global, global challenges. And I also mentioned uh, climate change, of course. We need the technologies, the products and services uh, to address climate change. And that will be done uh, also through innovation and uh, through, through trade. So that's a very important uh, uh, way of looking and thinking about trade I think, in the future. Maybe two, two more things I'll add if you want to look at, at some of the trends. I already mentioned, mentioned supply chains. Uh, supply chains are obviously critical. Um, I think one of the debates that we will see is, is a debate on what some people call the domestication of supply chains as opposed to the diversification of supply chains, the idea that some people want to bring back jobs in manufacturing and produce uh, more goods uh, within uh, a country. Uh, I think that's a, a discussion that has certainly been uh, accelerated in, in the COVID context as countries are looking to stockpile or, or are looking to source locally uh, products that previously came through the trade channel or came from, from overseas. So supply chains, I think that's one thing to watch. It's such an important part of how we trade, uh, but we may see further developments there. And the other thing is uh, what I already referred to, which is the importance of services in our trade. Uh, it's it's a quite quite a quite a word, but the, the literature that we speak about the serviceification of manufacturing. Um, there's a lot more services going into goods, uh, be it uh, legal services or R and D, mm. of course, uh, marketing and and all the like. Um, so there's no simple way of separating manufacturing or industry from, from, from services. So I think we will continue, we'll see a continued trend towards serviceification of, of manufacturing and also of trade. Uh, services are the biggest part of our economies, the United States and the European Union. And we're going to trade a lot more in, in these services. And those services are going to be critical inputs into, into goods. So I think for, for, for a hub like uh, Miami, it's, it's really critical uh, to think about it, things in that way, uh, that, that you're going to be part of those supply chains and that you're going to be providing uh, those services also into those uh, supply chains. 
makes a lot of sense. Miami is a primarily service-oriented industry. How does the new administration here in the U.S. come into play in all this? Well, we, we've obviously been, we work with any administration, but with the, the Biden administration, we have really embarked on a new agenda, and I would say a new partnership uh, to use trade as, as an enabler, as I said before. Trade needs to be part of the solution to address fight against COVID, uh, addressing uh, climate change, dealing also with, with some of the challenges that we see coming out of China. Um, so we're really using trade again as a platform to, to come together and to work together, not just on shipping containers and on our commercial uh, interests, which are uh, obviously part of the trade agenda, but also to try and reflect some of our common values into, into our uh, relationship and to use our relationship as a way to, to kind of amplify and, and perhaps export uh, some, some of those uh, very uh, values. Now, how we do that now and how we are trying to do it with the new administration is to, first of all, turn the page on some of the disputes that we've had. And I think we spoke about uh, some of them already. Airbus Boeing uh, is one. Uh, we are still working hard to remove uh, the tariffs that are there on the exports of steel and aluminum from the European Union uh, that were introduced by the previous administration. We are a partner to the European, to the, to the United States. So there's no reason or justification for having uh, those tariffs, which also helps us then uh, to remove any remaining tariffs that we have in place in response to those uh, steel and aluminum uh, tariffs. So we're working hard on turning the page and on making sure that we can address those disputes and make sure that those disputes and those irritants do not affect the wider relationship, which I would call managing our negative agenda. But then we really need to come to a positive agenda, making sure that we deliver uh, and create value in, uh, in the relationship through trade. And for that, the Trade and Technology Council is our new, our, our new vehicle or our new platform. It was uh, announced today that our leaders will be meeting uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we will actually witness firsthand how some cities and states are, are transforming in, in different ways and, and are transforming in particular into a digital uh, world and era. Um, and uh, it seems to be a, a very a good uh, place, therefore, to also discuss the digital transformation that we're trying to make uh, overall as, as we try to deal with some of these uh, new opportunities and, and try to deal with some of those new challenges. So the Trade and Technology Council is really a, a forum where we want to come together and deliver results and create value for, for businesses and for stakeholders um, more generally, uh, where we are able to, for example, um, come up with, with new standards in certain areas. And I, I, I keep going back to my onion where we try to kind of work uh, around certain layers. Can we come up with, for example, standards on human-centered artificial intelligence, one of those uh, key technologies that are so important for so many different uh, industries? Um, so that's that's really uh, that's really the, 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 the next uh, kind of uh, step in, in our relationship, uh, to have a positive conversation uh, with, with real concrete uh, outcomes and real value around the, the nexus of, of trade and technology. And that's, of course, an effort we, uh, we look forward to continuing uh, with the current administration and to really make sure that we are partners again and that we are uh, seeing each other's potential in, in, in the trading world. And maybe one last word I'll, I'll, I'll add to that is, uh, we haven't really spoken about that yet, is the World Trade Organization, of course. We, we speak about bilateral trade here, but it is very important that uh, we also come together in a, in a world context, in a global context, and I think the European Union and the United States have uh, very strong uh, common interests in making sure that we have a common rule book, uh, that we have open rules-based trade, and that we, of course, make sure 
that all countries around the world, including China, uh, of course, lives up to, uh, to that rule book, which is one of fair trade, of predictable trade, uh, and of, of rules-based trade. So a, a, a very full agenda, but I do believe we have a, a very strong uh, renewed commitment uh, to making trade great again and to have a very strong partnership across the Atlantic. So you, you mentioned you guys are meeting in Pittsburgh. What is Pittsburgh doing regarding technology that uh, it's causing you guys to meet there? Well, this is this is the start of the conversation. This is the first meeting of the Trade and Technology Council that was created at, at the summit back in June. And uh, the U.S. is hosting our, our first meeting, and they've chosen Pittsburgh because they consider it's a very good example of, of how uh, cities uh, that have a strong industrial past actually can make uh, the, the shift uh. towards digital uh, like digital that. economy digital environment um, and we will be witnessing firsthand some of the, uh, the companies and some of the ecosystem that has been put in place in in pittsburgh to be very clear it's only the first meeting the first conversation i'm sure we will be taking this this uh, this conversation to other cities uh, in europe or in in the united states um, but of course it's very important for us to both of us to to show that what we're doing um, really delivers for people and, and for uh, for businesses in a very concrete manner. So that's where we think it's very often uh, useful to get out of our, our sort of bubbles or outside of the beltway and um, and, and both engage and explain uh, to to, uh, to stakeholders around the country or in the European Union uh, how we can help them and also listen and, and engage in that conversation of how we can use uh, technology and how we can address some of the challenges that have to do with technology, be it cybersecurity, or, or quantum computing or artificial intelligence and to unleash that potential and make sure that we remain leaders, both of us together in the world on, on these critical technologies. You know, Miami Miami is blowing up with tech and stuff. So, you know, the mayor is trying really hard to push Miami as, as the next technology place to be. So you guys are welcome to come down anytime. We'll be happy to. I have one final question. Although I know that we're running out of time. This has been fantastic. Uh, what are, are you aware of any special relations or trade or otherwise between the EU and Florida? Well, I, well when we think of Florida, when we think of Miami specifically, we, we very much think of, of, of Miami as a hub. And I, I appreciate you just mentioned it's a tech hub in, in the making, um, but it's certainly a gateway for us, um, not just to, to, to the southern United States, uh, but also to, to the whole region, to a whole hemisphere almost. Uh, be it Central America and Latin America in particular. Uh, we obviously have a lot of uh, direct relationships with, with Latin America, but we certainly uh, like to use and like to see Miami and like to see Florida overall as, as a hub and as a partner uh, to help us also access those uh, those critical markets uh, from, from, uh, from, from that perspective. Um, so we certainly see a, a very vibrant economy, um, obviously travel being uh, such an important sector that has been heavily impacted from, um, from, from, from the pandemic, uh, but we're, we're pretty confident that that will rebound and that we will see uh, greater trade in that area and that we can come back to Miami, including to really access that, that, that fast market uh, that, that, uh, that Miami is a gateway to. Thomas, this has been fantastic. I have to thank the European American Chamber of Commerce for bringing us awesome guests every time. Christina, thank you so much. And again, Thomas, once again, thank you. I'm going to give it over to Christina for some final words. Yes, indeed. So many thanks, Alejandro, for inviting EACC Florida to partner with Miami Global Net on this deep dive on transatlantic trade. And many thanks to Thomas Bart uh, from the EU delegation in Washington, D.C., 
for crossing the DC Beltway and coming to Miami to share your insights, really interesting insights on some of the recent developments on transatlantic trade with our audience, including the scoop on the Trade and Technology Council. So we certainly look forward to hearing more about that. And as Alejandro said, hopefully you will bring you know, that, uh, those meetings to uh, South Florida at some stage, and you will certainly be very welcome to do so. So you can find further details about our guests, Thomas, Miami Global Net, and EACC Florida in the podcast notes. Please check EACC Florida's website for upcoming programs and information on how to join and subscribe to Miami Global Net to find out more about Miami's international community. <laughs>